Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. Over 200 hours of audio presentations are available on our website for you to download and burn to a CD for use in your car or home stereo, or to play on a portable player, such as an iPod. If you don't know how, visit our website for some instructions, or just listen to the presentations on your computer. Also available is a schedule of our upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. All this is available at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. This program, entitled True Faith and the Unknown, an Introduction to the Theological Virtues, was presented by Father Andrew Fisher at St. Leo the Great Catholic Church in Fairfax, Virginia, in March 2010. We hope you enjoy this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Father Fisher is going to lead us in prayer, so please stand. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Heavenly Father, pour out your grace upon us this evening to open our hearts, our minds, our ears, that all that we do we might grow in faith, hope, and love. We ask all these things through the intercession of the Blessed Virgin Mary and in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Thank you, Father. Our speaker tonight studied at Mount St. Mary's Seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. He was ordained in 1998. He has served as parochial vicar at St. William of York in Stafford, Virginia, Queen of Apostles in Alexandria, the Cathedral in Arlington, and as six years as Director of Liturgy at the Basilica at the National Shrine. And, and now is parochial administrator at St. Ambrose. Please welcome Father Fisher. Okay. Thank you. Faith, hope, and love are quite simply the three greatest things in the world. You can't overlook their importance. Together they make up the one thing that's necessary, life with God, the Trinity. We speak of them with great urgency and necessity, for they make the difference between heaven and hell, eternal life and eternal death, and there's nothing greater than that. Anyone who has faith, hope, and love can go to heaven. Anyone who rejects faith, open love will go to hell. Wow, what an opening, huh? Did I get your attention? Good. In Catholic groups, whenever you talk about hell, everyone stops and listens. It's like in the youth group, and I want their attention. I simply say to one of the youth ministers, did you hear this free pizza? And all the kids stop. So at Catholic gatherings, if you want your attention, you always say, heaven and hell, and suddenly everyone stops. And even a few people stop texting or taking notes. Tonight, I'd like to talk to you about faith, hope, and love. These are the greatest in our journey towards heaven. For they remind us our goal is God. Our goal is eternal life. And these virtues are not simply virtues. These virtues have God as their object. And they strengthen us with God's grace on our journey towards heaven. Tonight, I'd like to do three things. First, I'd like to review what is a virtue and what role virtue plays in human life and society. Then I'd like to switch to theological virtues. What are they and what role do they play in human life and in the mission of the church? And lastly, being someone who loves church history, I'd like to end by having some insights from the saints as to how to grow in the theological virtues. We'll call that your homework. Always end class with homework. That'll be your homework. Listen to the saints put that into action. First, what is a virtue? 
The word virtue comes from the Latin word vir, which signifies man, something manly, strong, and virile. That's where the word virile comes from. Vir can also be translated in Latin as life. Simply put, a man is fully alive when he has virtue. Aristotle, who lived in the 300s, wrote a landmark book on ethics and virtue. He spoke of virtue as arite, which is translated as an excellence. Virtue is a state of character and excellence that makes a human person good and enables that person to do good works. When Aristotle writes of a state of character, he uses the Greek word exus, which translates as a habit. A virtue is a habit that is an excellent habit. Aristotle understood human goodness or virtue as contributing to man's goal. Man has a goal. Virtue assists man in that goal. And what is the goal of man? In Greek, eukamania, which translates as happiness. Man's goal in life is happiness. How do we get to happiness? We do good things. And the more good things we do, the more excellent things we do, the more happier we are. If we tell the truth, we're happy, we make others happy. If we feed the hungry, we do a good work, we make others happy, we become happy. If we win a battle, if we're courageous, the virtue of courage, the entire city-state grows in happiness. Aristotle says that we have goals. In fact, his vision of ethics is called a teleological, a telos. We have a goal. To Aristotle, every action is geared towards something. Like an archer who will shoot an arrow, a bow and arrow at a goal, the big uh, bullseye. Every action is geared towards something. And he says that virtue, which is a good action, steers us towards happiness. Happiness leads us to our purpose in life. And lastly, Aristotle classifies virtue into two categories what he calls intellectual virtues, virtues that come from knowledge and understanding, and moral virtues, those concerned with controlling our desires and our passions. Simply put, Aristotle is clear that a person who performs an occasional good act is not virtuous. One must perform good acts regularly or make virtue a habit. Then you are a virtuous person. For this reason, Aristotle defines virtue as a firm and permanent disposition to perform good acts. Our next teacher tonight is St. Augustine, who writes in the late 300s. He understood virtue as something that's rightly ordered towards God. City of God, chapter 15. With God alone to be loved for his own sake, and all other loves or actions subordinate to the love of God. Since only grace, which comes through Christ, enables a human being to love God above all else, it follows that non-Christians cannot possess true virtue, Augustine says. God's grace helps us towards good actions. And the greatest action is love. And so therefore, Augustine will say that virtue is when man chooses good acts that lead us in love of God. And that love of God is only possible by God's grace. Lastly, in this point, we come to St. Thomas Aquinas, who writes in the 1200s. He addresses the question of virtue in his Summa. 
and he beautifully harmonizes Aristotle and Augustine. According to Thomas, human virtue is a good habit which produces good works. He followed Aristotle in distinguishing there's intellectual and moral virtues. He reduced moral virtues to four cardinal virtues, prudence, temperance, fortitude, and justice. By the way, if you didn't go to class the last time when you learned about the cardinal virtues, the word carda means hinge. For these cardinal virtues are the hinges that open the door to all the other virtues. Interesting. According to Aquinas, if we consider human nature an abstract from sin and grace, the intellectual more virtues are sufficient for human happiness in the natural order. That is, one can obtain them through human power alone. But, there's always a but, but, Thomas goes on to say, God offers the human being a happiness that surpasses human nature. In other words, Aristotle says we're called to be happy by human virtues. And Thomas says that's right. Human virtues can lead us towards a human happiness. But God who loves us more wants something more than just human excellence or human happiness. He wants supernatural happiness. Heaven. And so to Thomas Aquinas, virtue now goes a step further with God's grace. In other words, God calls us to eternal happiness, not just human happiness. And we call that the beatific vision. Heaven, God himself. The prize above all prizes. Ning, ning, ning. God's. God's. What is happiness? It's the happiness that won't fade. God. Heaven. And so Thomas says that all virtues enabled by God's grace direct us and lead us beyond our human actions. These virtues are called faith, hope, and love. And Aquinas will call them the theological virtues because their telus or their bullseye is theos, which translates God. Aristotle says that all human virtues seek a human good. But the theological virtues seek God, who is the source and summit of faith, hope, and love. Theological virtues, if you're an archer, are God himself, not simply a human happiness, but a supernatural and eternal happiness. So far, so good? No one's fallen off the bus, as one of my teachers in seminary used to say. Good. In short, the theological virtues themselves are not acquired through human practice, but by God's grace. These virtues are called theological because first their object is God, secondly because they're infused in us by God alone, and thirdly because these virtues are not made known to us by human knowledge but by divine revelation. What are the theological virtues? They are three. Faith, hope, and love. He who possesses these virtues has all other natural virtues in some degree, because human excellence or virtues are fulfilled in faith, hope, and love. And without theological virtues, we cannot possess any of the other graces. We're not disposed to be open to all the graces that God gives. Really quick, the cliff notes, faith. Faith is the virtue by which we firmly believe all the truths of God and all the truths that God reveals. On the word of God revealing them, for God can never deceive or be deceived.
Number two, hope. Hope is the virtue by which we firmly trust that God who is all-powerful and faithful to his promises will in his mercy give us eternal happiness and the means to obtain it. That's hope. And lastly, love or charity. Charity is the virtue by which we love God above all things for his own sake and our neighbor as ourselves for the love of God. St. Paul tells us that in heaven, faith and hope will cease. For we, we will not need faith, for we'll already know. Nor can we desire anything more, because we'll have God. But for all eternity, we'll have God, who is love. And therefore, the greatest of these is love. Well, that's all you need to know about theological virtues. Thank you for coming tonight. <laughs> I was told to keep it short. The, the new improved lessons, our announcements are shorter. There you go. But if you permit me, if you need a stretch or anything so far, if not, permit me just another few minutes. The need for theological virtues. Much of the writings of Plato and Aristotle involve the challenge of virtuous living. Whether in the form of their dialogues or analysis, both thinkers faced the same issues and sought the same goal. How is someone good when society is not always good? Interesting. These questions were written centuries before Christ, and we're still asking the same questions today. Not much has changed since the time of Plato and Aristotle in terms of moral questions and needs. For the greater part of Western civilization, education was directed towards helping students identify virtue and then developing a life based upon it. In fact, from the very beginning of our nation, education was seen as a necessary part of the great endeavor of forming a person and a nation in the way of virtue. Interesting. How often we need to make sure our young people and our nation understand virtue means we seek something greater. We seek an excellence. We seek a happiness that is an excellence that does not pull down, but rather raise up. And that all we do should have clear goals of bringing the fullness of life to the person and society. How much our education of young people and even our laws need to have such clarity in their goals or what they seek. However, we're not here tonight to talk about simply human excellence or virtue. We're not here to talk about the understanding of man according to Aristotle and Plato. In his work on the Beatitudes in the late 4th century, St. Gregory of Nassa wrote that the goal of virtuous life is, quote, to become like God, unquote. How do we do this? How can we become like God through our actions, our choices, and our deeds? Well, here we see the need for something more than just human action and human excellence. Rather, we see a goal that is beyond human virtue. A supernatural virtues are needed, or theological virtues. In other words, we were made for more than just doing good. We were made for heaven. The practice and development of the virtues. St. Paul, perhaps out of his own youthful experience of sports, describes the struggle for virtuous life in terms of sports or athletes. At the core of the virtuous living, he says, is practice. The old saying, practice makes perfect, applies not only to one's golf swing or how one throws a curveball. Really, it applies to growing in virtue. 
the virtuous life depends on developing, identifying, and forming, and even orienting our life, St. Paul says, to a way of life that is not just human excellence, but a response to God. While it is true that we are born with natural talents or dispositions toward what is good, habits must be practiced with regularity to make that response to what is good both constant and spontaneous. We define character by the practice of virtue, and the strength of our character will reflect perfection of virtue. This is true in human nature. But now St. Paul and Scripture take it a step further. The Catechism of the Catholic Church when addressing virtue begins with human, vir human virtues and then treats it as all pointing towards even greater or supernatural virtues. As we said earlier, human or moral virtues are acquired by human effort. But what we truly seek is acquired by faith and grace. Remember that both moral and theological virtues defend, depend on practice to make perfection. And the theological virtues will also require our openness or our disposition towards God's grace and God's assistance. As we hear, grace builds on nature or our openness. Let me now turn to faith, hope, and love. Every morning when I used to go to work for six years at the National Shrine of the Immaculate Conception, above the east entrance is a great carving. And it's a quote taken from the letter to the Hebrews. It says, Faith is the realization of what is hoped for, an evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11, 1. By virtue of faith, God enables us to share in the light of his own being, his own knowledge, so that we may come to know God and his saving words. Faith is a gift from God. Remember, Aristotle said, virtues are what we do. We become courageous by our efforts. We tell the truth by our efforts. Aristotle talks about a human virtue. But faith comes from God and his grace. We cannot believe in God except by the power of the Holy Spirit, Scripture says. We are capable of supporting our faith life by God's grace. We are open to God. We are humble enough to accept God. And faith grows in us. Faith comes from God. According to Archbishop Donald Wuerl in his book, Living Faith Today, he states that it takes two to carry on a conversation, even when one of the participants is God. God wants us to have faith and offers us His grace, and if we're open to it, the virtue of faith takes place. Does that make sense? When Jesus led the apostles to faith, He invited them to friendship with Himself. As they came to know Him, they began to realize the richness of the life that they had not yet known and they had longed for. The apostles didn't have faith. The apostles had an openness to Jesus. And then came faith. Jesus invites all Christians to faith. But he clearly respects our human intelligence. His words are accompanied by signs that they are true. In the wisdom of his teachings, in the goodness of his life, in the power of his miracles, our openness becomes faith. So too the theological virtue of faith does not act in a vacuum. Rather it builds on and is strengthened 
by what God is doing in our hearts and our minds. Whenever I teach RCI class, people come and say, Father, I want to learn more about the faith. It didn't just happen. They're there responding to something God's doing in their life. Whether it be in the silence of their hearts or other things going on, they have an openness to God and then it begins and faith grows. All of us could talk about that. How that silent and powerful way that God probes and touches our heart and then faith begins to grow. Faith doesn't happen by something I did. Faith happens by something God does in me. And then it bears fruit. If you've ever been to the National Shrine of Our Lady of Lords in Emmitsburg, Maryland, the famous grotto, you'll see etched in the pulpit there a famous quote that actually comes from the movie The Song of Bernadette. And it's the opening of the movie. And it says, For those who believe, no explanation is necessary. For those who don't believe, no explanation is possible. The great theological virtue of faith begins with God and then comes to dwell in us. Normally people need good reasons to clear their way to faith. While there's no conflict between intelligence and faith, faith and reason, we need to recognize that human reason alone is not sufficient for faith. No one can come to faith simply by speeches or books or dialectics. Faith involves God, not complex arguments. Nonetheless, our intelligence can stimulate the pursuit of personal faith. In the encyclical letter, Fides et Ratio, Faith and Reason, Pope John Paul II describes faith and reason as, quote, two wings on which the human spirit rises to the contemplation of truth, unquote. The metaphor highlights the relationship between faith and reason and the importance of the efforts of the human mind to be open to faith and understand the gift of divine revelation. The theological virtue of faith is indispensable. That is why it is the first or primary theological virtue. Without it, no progress can be made in our relationship with God or the church. The Gospels portray the progress of St. Peter towards faith. He has seen Christ's goodness and the miracles. He's hung on the teachings of Christ. But when the Lord's invitation led Peter to make a concrete step from opinion towards faith, Christ told him that this new conviction is not the result of his efforts or others. Quote, Bluster you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. Unquote. Matthew 16, 17. Faith comes from God and requires our openness to that gift. Peter Kreft, a famous Catholic author and professor at Boston College, points out that the word religion comes from the Latin word regulare, which means relationship, relationship with God. Faith opens our friendship with God and begins a conversation. And just like any friendship, the more we spend time with that person and we know who they are, the more we accept what they say. Does that make sense? The whole of religion stems from faith. Our creed is a summary of faith. Morality is the way we live the faith. Liturgy is our celebration of the faith. Prayer comes from our faith that someone hears our prayers. The Catholic faith is summarized in the Apostles' Creed. What God opens in each of us, faith, is able to grow, to be lived, 
and to be expressed. The gift of faith opens a relationship with God and with His church. Without faith, we have no friendship with God or with His church. The church has always summarized faith, what she believes in her creeds, especially in the first and most important, the, Ap the Apostles' Creed, which we cite at the Rosary. That expression of faith and revelation led to the Nicene Creed, which we profess at Mass every Sunday. These are called creeds because they, believe, they begin with the words credo, or I believe. This is what my faith teaches. This is what I hold as my faith. These assist us in our understanding of God. However, remember, our faith is not in the creed. Our faith is in God. The creeds remind us of what we seek and what we believe, God himself. Faith includes a desire to know all that is infinite, all that God who is infinite is revealed, since God is beyond us. Therefore, we say faith seeks to know revelation. Faith seeks understanding. Thus, faith leads us to the church, a church that has authority to pass on what is revealed through scripture and sacred tradition. Such desire leads us to the church that has the authority, magisterium, to pass on and to maintain the accuracy of what has been taught and revealed. This is all expressed in Dei Verbum, the Second Vatican Council's document on the relationship between faith, between revelation, and the church. This truth is spoken so well in the Catechism, when the Catechism teaches us that salvation comes from God alone, but because we receive the light of faith through the church, the church is our mother and teaches us the faith. The faith comes to us not from the church, but through the church from God, just as our bodily life comes from God through our human mothers. Lastly, faith is not feelings or emotion. Feelings are influenced by external things. Diet, music, fashion, fame, applause, the opinions of others. That's how many people form their faith. What's going on will affect my faith. But when God gives us the gift of faith, He gives it not from outside, but from within. Faith begins in the internal, not the external. So therefore, someone with faith keeps their faith strong even when the things around us begin to change. Amen? Amen. We have freedom to believe or not. The act of faith is ours. Faith is believing in God and in what is revealed. God is the object of our faith. And therefore, only God can give us faith. Okay? Number two, hope. You're still awake? Still all right? Do I have to go back and talk about heaven and hell again to get everyone's blood pumping? Okay, good. Excellent. The Catechism of the Catholic Church describes hope as the theological virtue by which we desire the kingdom of heaven and eternal life is our happiness. Remember, Sal talked about happiness? But he talked about a human happiness. Hope talks about a supernatural happiness, placing our trust in Christ, and hope comes and is strengthened by the grace of the Holy Spirit. This is the virtue that keeps us from discouragement and sustains us during times when we feel hurt or abandoned. It is the gift from God that opens our hearts to expect all that God has promised. In the virtue of hope, God gives us unshakable confidence in himself. St. Paul speaks in the name of every Christian when he says in his letter to the Romans, 
Quote, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor height nor depth, nor any creature will be able to separate us from love of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. In the face of so many challenges, hope gives us a confidence that what we believe is true and it will come to pass. We need the virtue of hope. Only the angels don't need hope, for they do not live in time and have no future. Angels possess the whole reality at once. But we are creatures in time, and so therefore we have to believe something beyond what is present. So therefore hope helps us. Hope is like headlights. We are here, but helps us in the darkness to see and to judge by what will come. It's not easy to drive without headlights, is it? It's not easy to have faith without hope. For faith leads to hope. If God exists and we are strong in our faith, we have hope. Peter Kreft points out that the concept of hope has often been trivialized in our society. Just as faith has been turned into I believe or I feel, I believe becomes I feel, so I hope in today's world becomes I wish, or wouldn't it be nice? But Christian hope or the theological virtue of hope comes from God's grace. It's not a wish or a feeling or a awe. Hope is a rock. Hope is a certainty. Hope is a guarantee. In ancient art in the catacombs, the virtue of hope was pictured as an anchor. That's not warm and fuzzy or fluffy. An anchor holds us firm. God's grace gives us faith. And faith leads us to hope. I'll give you a very concrete example. The funeral liturgy. When we say the prayers at a Catholic funeral, one of the closing words of the Mass is, quote, we pray now in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. Unquote. Not just hope, but the sure and certain hope. And it's for that reason we can express our hope in the funeral liturgy. When the casket's brought to the church, the doors of the church, what do we do? We sprinkle with holy water. It's a reminder of the day of that person's baptism. We have faith that God conquered death and the waters of baptism we share in that. And so that faith leads to hope. That holy water reminds us our hope in the resurrection. That the promise of baptism, God keeps his promise. We then place a white garment over the casket, just like on the day of that person's baptism, they were robed in a white garment, a baptismal garment, right? Wrapped a little baby in the white garment. It's a sign of hope that just like this little baby is wrapped in a cloth, so now in heaven we'll be wrapped in the glory of God, where God will keep his promise. And lastly, as we bring the casket into the church, there at the altar to welcome the person is the Easter candle. This huge white candle is glowing with light and life and power. And on the day of baptism, when the person's baptized, they're given a candle, a sharing in the resurrection. So we live in hope, but not just wouldn't it be nice to have heaven. We live in the hope of heaven because God's grace allows us to believe God exists and God who can neither be deceived or deceive will lead us to have our hopes fulfilled. Hope means the agony and the ecstasy of longing for a joy that will not come in this life. Or as St. Thomas de Kempis reminds us in the imitation of Christ, we live in the world with our hearts set on the world that is to come.
the greatest love. As St. Paul teaches, and we recognize, the greatest of the theological virtues is love. Think of virtues as a bullseye. What's the true bullseye? Love. Faith and hope lead us towards love. Quote, poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit is love. Romans 5, 5. Enables us to cling with our whole hearts to God with an energy and a life, not by our human power, but by God's grace. It is in love that we actually identify with God, who, as St. John teaches in Scripture, is love. God is love. Quote, Behold, beloved, let us love one another, because love is of God. Everyone who loves is begotten by God and knows God. Whoever is without love does not know God, for God is love. Unquote. 1 John 4, 7-9. We cannot speak of love without God, and we cannot speak of God without love. Sadly, all too often in our world today, we try and use the word love or understandings of love that do not point towards God or come from God. Listen to music and songs or read different magazines at the checkout line and you'll see my point. There may be no doubts, personal interpretations, or government legislations about what love is. For God is love. And what we know about love comes from God. And by God's grace, we are able to love. Quote, I give you a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. Unquote. John 13. Love comes from God. Love leads us to God. Love is only possible with God. However, there is a proper order to love. After love of God comes love of self. Christ commanded, you shall love your neighbors as yourself. But the love of self that is set as the standard for love of one's neighbor is a right love of self, a love governed and guided by the love of God. If one does not have a correct view or love of self, a love that, fro- a love that flows from the love of God, then one's not able to love their neighbor. All of us should be thinking about our salvation and our ability to love God, and only then God's love and grace enables us to love our neighbor. Does that make sense? I'll give you an example the little movie they show before takeoff, and they warn you what may happen in the flight, and the stewardess is there showing you what to do, right? And it says, in case of turbulence, masks will fall down. Please put your mask on first, and only then you will be able to help your children put their masks on. It's not very Thomistic. I'm actually stealing it from United or Delta or somebody, but the point of the catechism is that if we grow in our faith, hope, and love, and God's graces are working on us, only then are we able to truly love our neighbor. Does that make sense? That's why Jesus says in Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. A true Christian love and understanding of one's call to holiness and one's relationship with God, and therefore supernatural dignity and way of life, will lead us to our love of neighbor. One cannot love neighbor without truly love of God and true love of oneself. St. Paul writes to the church of Corinth, where members in the church are divided and having fights over who is the most important, or who is able to do the greatest acts of service and love. And so rather than being in cooperation, they're in competition. And therefore, St. Paul writes one of the most glorious statements on love. Ever been to a wedding? This will sound very familiar. Paul explained that every part of the human body has its own function, and each member of the church has his own role to play. But all parts of the body have the same blood flowing through it that give it life. 
and all in the church have the same grace flowing through us so that no matter what our vocation or way of life in the church, whatever our apostolic work, it all flows to God and from God. Theological virtues, remember, go towards God because first they come from God. He reminds us, faith, hope, and love remain, but the greatest of these is love. Love gives life to the body. If I speak in human angelic tongues but do not have love, I'm just a gong or a symbol. If I have prophetic powers and comprehend all mysteries and have all knowledge, if I have all faith, so as to move mountains, but don't have love, I gain nothing. 1 Corinthians. It follows then that our treatment of the theological virtue of love leads us to understand that if we love God and God's love is at work in us, it flows out of us by the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the catechism goes from treating the theological virtue of love to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. As Jesus said in John's Gospel, I'm the vine, you are the branches. Whoever lives in me shares life with me and will bear fruit. If God is love, and by faith we're open to God and what he's taught us, hope, God's love flows through us into the church and the world. What is this love flowing through us? It's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, fortitude, knowledge, piety, and fear of the Lord. What are the fruits of this love that are manifested if I have love? Talk is cheap. Love is seen, right? Love is manifested. Well, the manifestation of God's love and grace working in the Christian are charity, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, generosity, gentleness, faithfulness, modesty, self-control, and chastity. I'd end this section on the great theological virtue of love by saying, I'd be remiss if I didn't say the Eucharist. For if God is love and the Eucharist is God himself, when we receive the Eucharist, God's love is poured out into us. You are what you eat. My mother said that. I always told her she's a theologian. You are what you eat. So if you receive Jesus present in the Eucharist, his love is at work in us. St. John Vianney said that one Mass, one Holy Communion, would fill us with enough love for eternity. How privileged we are to have it every Sunday or for some every day. The value of one Holy Communion is beyond the value of a lifetime of human good works, St. John Vianney said. Wow. I go back to Plato and Aristotle, who said that we should do good things and be good people. That's not enough, folks. God wants us to do holy things and get to heaven. So we take Aristotle's excellence and move it to supernatural excellence, the beatific vision. Okay, let me end by turning the microphone over to the saints, as I promised. I'm going to give you just a few quotes from the saints to hopefully help us leave tonight, not just with notes on faith, hope, and love, but maybe ideas how to put that into action. Faith. Quote, faith ultimately is a gift. Consequently, the first condition of faith is to let ourselves be given something, not to be sufficient or do everything by ourselves, because we can't, but to open ourselves to the awareness of God and that God gives us faith. Pope John Paul II. Quote, The disbelief of Thomas has done more for our faith than all the faith of the other apostles. As he touched Christ and has won over to belief, every doubt is cast aside 
And we can see that Jesus gives faith, and faith changes our lives. Pope St. Gregory the Great. Quote, God is not a deceiver that he should offer to support us, and then when we lean upon him, he should slip away from us. God reveals himself so that we have God. St. Augustine. Quote, the eyes of the world see no further than this life, as mine see no further than the church door that is in front of me. But the eyes of the Christian see deep into God, and therefore see eternity. St. John Vianney. Hope. Quote, Hope is manifested through the virtue of patience, which continues to do good even in the face of apparent failure. And through the virtue of humility, which accepts God's mystery and trusts in Him, even in times of darkness. Pope Benedict XVI. Quote, The most beautiful credo is not said at Holy Mass, but how we live our faith in times of darkness. This is what we call the virtue of hope. Padre Pio. Quote, The most hopeful people in the world are young people and those who are drunk. The young have hope, for they believe success will come even if it takes time. And the drunk have hope, for they have succeeded in drowning all sorrows. St. Thomas Aquinas. <laughs> if I saw the gates of hell open, and I stood on the brink of the great abyss, I would not despair. I shall never lose hope, because I trust in God's love and all that he has promised the church. St. Gemma. Galiaga. Lastly, love. Quote, Love is indeed ecstasy, not in the sense of a moment of intoxication, but rather a journey, an ongoing exodus out of the closed, inward-looking self to authentic discovery of self, fulfillment, the purpose of life, and the discovery of the greatest joy, God. Pope Benedict XVI. Quote, we cannot now form an adequate idea of the capacity of love that the human soul will have in the next life, nor of the capacity of love in this life. Remember that we are made in the image likeness of God, who is perfect love. St. Bernard of Clairvaux. Quote, we are born to love. We live our lives so that we may love, and we shall die so that we can love all the more for all eternity. St. Joseph Cofaso. My last one. Quote, The school of Christ is the school of love. On the last day, when the general examination takes place, there will be no question at all on the texts of Aristotle, the teachings of Plato, or the paragraphs of Justinian. Charity will be the whole syllabus of that exam. St. Robert Bellarmine. I end by simply saying that in the mind of philosophers, we're called to be good. In the mind and the heart of God, we're called to be his forever. And so as we talk about the gifts of faith, hope, and love, a gift always reflects the giver. And so faith, hope, and love lead us to heaven and are free, a generous gift of God. It tells us so much about the giver, God himself. Amen. Okay. Thank you.
Thank you, Father Fisher. All right, so our regular rules apply. Which how, Who wants to stand up and give me the rules? You guys know them by heart, right? For those that are new, we're going to have five questions max. Your question has to be one sentence long. If you have to take a breath in the middle, you broke my rule. And there has to be a question mark on the end. And what's my new rule? It's got to relate to the topic, at least. Hi, Father. Uh, is there a way of knowing when we love ourselves rightly? Well, Jesus taught us in Scripture that I give you a new commandment, love one another as I have loved you. So Jesus is the example of love, right? So when we talk about Christ-like love, we understand that there is a right and wrong in defining what love is. In terms of love of self, that would be we know God, we know He created us in His image and likeness, and therefore we respond to God, right? Faith and hope lead to love. So how do I live my life? It's in response to Jesus Christ, now He taught me to love. Does that make sense? That's a little beyond me, but Sorry? Could, could, you, right. could you elaborate a little bit more? Sure. It's not enough to simply say, love one another. Because anyone could define love by whatever they want to. And unfortunately, that's one of the problems in our world today. We, I love someone, and therefore I might do bad things to them. Or I, I love someone, so therefore I might buy something for them they shouldn't have. Or I might really love something, but we can't love something. We're a person. We're made in the image of God. We can only love someone, right? You know, sometimes working with the youth group, they say, Father, I love this CD. I love my new rock and roll CD someone gave me. And it's like, what is love? makes him stop and think. So we love. We're made in the image and likeness of God, a communion of persons. So that which allows us to love God more allows us to be fully human. And therefore, we have a measuring stick of what is authentic love. How I treat myself. Do those actions open me up or dispose me to God and his love more? Does that make sense? Okay, good. Good, all right. One down. Two-part question. Uh, I just joined the church last year. I was all baptized right. last year. Hey, and all right. So, uh, so uh, let's see what's troubling it, me is, does one love oneself rightly first or love God first? Or what? which is the sequence there? Well, that's, that's part one, and I have that part two. I have well, finish it. Go ahead. Finish okay, it. part two is then if one does not love oneself rightly or love oneself very much how does how do you change that how do you change it how do you go about that in the second vatican council's document on the the dogmatic constitution of of the church it says that man knows himself by knowing god in other words the more we know about god the more we understand who we are right we understand why we are Right? We understand what our purpose in life is. We understand there's right and wrong. The more I come to know God, the more faith I have in God and understand what he's taught me, it's only then I can have true love. That's why it's in that order. Faith leads to hope, and faith and hope, with God's grace, lead to love. Right. So in order for me to love my neighbor, I first have to love God, and in knowing God, I realize he loves me, and I respond to that. So therefore, I understand that I am a person loved by God, and once I understand the human dignity, or understand my dignity, then only then I have the ability to look at that dignity in others, right? I'll illustrate that with a, an interesting uh, thing that someone told me the other day, and that is that uh, 
Dr. Navarro Valls is a Spanish uh, medical physician, and he actually, for about three or four years, was the Vatican spokesman under John Paul II, Dr. Navarro Valls. So a layman, instead of a, a priest or a monsignor, but he was uh, chosen by, by John Paul II, sometimes at like, press conferences to help answer questions or in order to pass on information to the press corps or to people who have questions about the church's teachings or certain policies. A friend of mine was trying to put together a conference or a series on uh, John Paul II's view of the human person. And he asked Dr. Navarro Valls, you've worked with John Paul II, you've studied his thought at dinner, John Paul II would explain to you what his thought was so you could pass it on. Could you please come and do the opening conference? And I want to call it, What is the Human Person? And Dr. Navarro Valls said, I will not come and give that talk unless you change it to who, who is the human person. Not what is the human person, who is the human person. The more we know God, the more we can understand ourselves. And only then can we understand our neighbor, right? So does that answer your question? Does that answer both questions? You don't have to ask questions. It's okay if we end early. It's okay. <laughs> we still have the wine and cheese. Well, it's all right. Back. Father, you said that St. John Vianney said that one communion is, is basically all we need to, that it, it will fill us. Perfect love. He says we receive God's love, which is perfect. Okay. And the other quote he gave was, one holy Eucharist, one reception is, is greater than all the good actions of our own efforts. In other words, the Eucharist is the work of God, right? Okay. The liturgy is the work of God. It's making present on the altar the sacrifice of our redemption. And so therefore, to participate in that, that greatest act of love and that perfect act of love surpasses every human excellence, right? So how do we make it take effect in us to that same degree? Sure. It's participation. Jesus Christ died and rose from the dead one time. The Mass is not re-killing or re-crucifying Jesus Christ. The Mass is when this eternal, all-powerful, supernatural action is made present on the altar and we participate in it. So when we receive the Eucharist, we enter into that mystery and we allow God's love and grace to flow through us, to strengthen us. Because as we talk about theological virtues, they come from God and lead us back to God. They lead us to Him. That's the bullseye. That's the, the goal, the telos, the theological virtues, is to get us to God, the Trinity. Right? That's what we were made for. Remember the Baltimore Catechism? Why were you created? To know, love, and serve God in this life and be with Him forever in the next. Well, that suffices. So what's the Eucharist do? It's God's love and grace flowing into us, strengthening us on that mission or our identity, which is to be fully alive in God. And the Eucharist, who is God and God's love, strengthens us for that journey. Does that make sense? that answer your question? Okay. Good. I don't know if you know it or not, but when someone receives communion for the last time, it's called viaticum, which in Latin, via ticum, means with you on the way. Via, way, t-u, cum, with. So when you receive the Eucharist and you're closing your eyes to this life, it's Jesus and his love leading you on the way to heaven for the last time. Because once you're in heaven, you won't need the Eucharist. You will, God willing, right, be in the presence of God, right, forever. Okay?
Father, it's a, this is a trick question. So you're walking through the desert, you come up and you have enough water to get through and alive. You come across someone who's dying of thirst. Do you give him any or do you just adios or what do you do? <laughs> in, in light of the question that, yeah, that's the question, but in light of your comment that love of God, love of self, then love of neighbor. So if you could put all that together. Sure. In a few weeks, a copy of this will be available for you for downloading. And if, you, if you study my notes from tonight, uh, no doubt it will come to you. No, love of God, right, and love of neighbor are the two great laws. But how do you fit into that? Well, first you have to have an openness to God's love, right? Right? God's faith begins by God working interiorly in us. And then, as we grow in love of God, and we go in understanding of God and God's grace, then that flows out of us. Now that love of self is put in there because the more we love God, the more we understand that I have gifts and talents now, not for myself, but for others. And that's why I quoted St. Paul's letter when he says that there's a lot of gifts and talents in the church, but unless you're using those gifts and talents for the ultimate cause of love to bring people to Christ, those gifts and talents are worthless. So in terms of whatever gifts and talents you have, whether it be water or speech or... Uh, math and science, art, whatever your talents are, if we're not putting them at the disposal of God and therefore the disposal of our neighbor to serve, to bring them closer to Jesus Christ, then we really don't love our neighbor, we don't love ourselves, and we don't love God. That just gave you the answer. Thank you, Father Fisher. Father Fisher, please conclude in prayer. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end, amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. For more information, recorded programs, or schedules of upcoming events, visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org.